You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You can find all of your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. And for this very special podcast, we have a new sponsor, Hathaway Strategies. Hathaway Strategies is an innovative grassroots public affairs consulting firm. Based in Indianapolis, Indiana, the team at Hathaway Strategies draws upon decades of experience on the federal, state, and local levels to help companies, candidates, and campaigns achieve their unique corporate or political goals. And I believe that uh, not only does everyone on the podcast today know everyone at Hathaway Strategies, but you've all worked together many, many times. The subject of today's podcast is the historic and victorious 106-day campaign of then-Lieutenant Governor Eric Holcomb in November that culminated on November 8th, 2016, with his election as governor of the state of Indiana. And he's doing a damn good job in incredibly difficult circumstances. But today's conversation is about the campaign, and we have current Indiana Republican Party Chairman Kyle Hupfer, We have probably uh, one of my favorite, not probably, one of my favorite PR folks and Chicago Cubs devotee, Pete Seat, sometimes co-host of the Leaders and Legends podcast, and one of my current bosses, Michael Bryan, who served as the campaign manager, if I got that title right, Mike, for uh, Eric Holcomb's campaign in 2016. Thank you all very much for joining. Thank you. Briefly, I'm going to go through and have each one of you kind of tell me what your expand on what your roles were in the campaign and and take a minute and talk about how long you've known Eric and how you've met Uh, Chairman Hupfer. We'll start with you. Well, I mean, I've known Eric for a long time. I mean, our our sort of friendship dates back to the pre Mitch days of being a couple of first people out on the road. Um campaigning for Mitch, even before Mitch was campaigning for himself. And then obviously throughout that entire campaign, we worked together at the, um, in, in Governor Daniels' first administration. Um, when he decided he was going to run for U.S. Senate, um, I was his treasurer and, uh, you know, raised most of his money for that, um, and then stayed on as that role as treasurer in the lieutenant governor's race, 
that then morphed into a governor's race. So it was always sort of on that side, of, on the money side of the, the campaign, um, but then was just involved in various uh, sundry tasks as a sign, whether it was, you know, kind of spearheading the effort at the state committee to, uh, I was a member of the state committee as the fifth district chairman. So spearheaded that effort to, you know, get uh, Eric on the ballot. Um, when the, when the, when vice president Pence was, was removed from the ballot to become the vice presidential nominee, um, you know, we had to get a new candidate on the ballot. So worked with the committee there and then did various tasks along the way, Lieutenant governor search, um, very, various other things throughout the campaign. Pete. So I first uh, became acquainted with Eric when I wrote, it was after I left Washington working at the white house, came back home to Indiana. And I wrote a column about Mitch Daniels potentially running for president and the reasons why he should run for president. And of course this crossed Eric Holcomb's desk, who was deputy chief of staff to Mitch at the time. And he sent me an unsolicited email saying, Hey, you and I need to talk. Mm -hmm. So I happened to be in Indianapolis several weeks later for an Indiana uh, Federation of Republican Women event I uh, was speaking at and had the opportunity to meet with Eric and chat about the column and what he was doing and what he might be doing down the road. And as as we all know on this podcast today, Eric is really good at keeping in touch with people uh, once he makes that initial outreach or has that initial interaction. So we kept in touch over the years. And, um, you know, flash forward, I, I've served uh, alongside him as a communications director in five different capacities. I was his <laughs> communications director at the Indiana Republican Party when he was chairman, and then on his U.S. Senate campaign, and then on the lieutenant governor's campaign when he became lieutenant governor, then for the campaign we're talking about today, the 2016 106-day campaign, um, and then for the, uh, the, the beginning months of the reelection effort uh, before leaving state party in the campaign last year. So been, been around him for a long time, um, helping communicate that message. Michael? Well, I think being campaign manager for his gubernatorial race was the first time I ever worked for Eric Holcomb and I had a title and got a paycheck. So my, my experience with uh, <laughs> Eric was a lot like Kyle's where you just kind of got drafted to, you know, help out and, and pick up a project here and there and just kind of work around him uh, with whatever he was doing, whether it was run Mitch's reelection and 08 or as state chairman uh, or working for Coates and any of the things that he did uh, prior to that. I, I met him the first time I really met him and got to know him. We, we shared an office in the basement of the state house in Mitch's first term. We were, he and I were one of the kind of the 10 or 15 kind of first people that got hired uh, to work in the governor's office uh, when Mitch got elected in 04. So I was kind of a day one guy with uh, with that group. Um, and he and I shared an office in the basement. I was doing legislative and he was doing kind of external um, coalition building and things that supported the, the legislative effort and the agenda that, that Mitch had. Um, but I really got to know him well and worked closely with him when I left the governor's office. And he soon after transitioned out to run the reelect. And, and I just worked around that. I didn't have an official role in any of that, but I was one of those deals where you're kind of in the office every day doing whatever, doing whatever comes up. Um, and we just stayed close for a long time. And, and when uh, 16 came around and he became Lieutenant governor. And then a few months later um, there was the opening for, on, on the ballot and Pence got picked up as Kyle described. Um, Kyle really 
deserves a credit for running that effort um, of actually get, getting that getting that done and getting Eric selected as a candidate. We all kind of picked up the phone and called the state committee members we knew and and worked that worked that list. But the organizational side of it and getting that done was uh, was all Kyle. And then I got really involved soon after that on July 27th. I uh, Eric asked me to run the campaign, and by August 2nd we were. I think that was the first day we were all in the office and, and um, the, the new senior team was in uh, Marty Obst and the senior team with Pence were on an airplane flying all over the country. And, and uh, we had a big job to do here. To any of you had Eric, when you first met him in the, in the Daniels administration, or as Kyle was saying, the pre the pre Daniels administration, had he expressed an interest in being an elected official or I mean some people like to be elected and some people like to you know help wield power and get people elected Mike to you first is that something he had said when you first met him no I mean he wasn't one of these guys that was always you know trying to move up the ladder and gunning for a you know an elected position um he was always a guy that was focused first on on trying to be helpful in the moment whatever that role looked like um whether it was you know he saw before before Mitch did, he saw the, the need for real leadership in the governor's office and, and for an unconventional way to do that and, and do, come about it. And he was the, one, the first guy that, um, you know, was in Mitch's ear on uh, coming back and running for governor when, when Mitch was out in D.C. and running OMB. Um, you know, and you kind of carry that through his, his entire career. I mean, he clearly moved moved up in the ranks of the party, to, ran the party and ran uh, Senator Coates' operation. Um and then ran for the U.S. Senate himself, um, and really saw a, a way to serve there um, until uh, Sue Elsperman uh, went and became the president of Ivy Tech, and it created an opportunity, an opportunity there. And he was the right guy at the right time to step in and, and balance, um, bring balance to that uh, to that ticket for uh, for Mike Pence. Um, so it was never about kind of gunning for the top job. Um, it was about doing what you're charged to do well and hoping another opportunity opens itself up down the line and it clearly did and all that goodwill he had, he had accumulated over the years from at the county party level and you know the, one of the reasons the state committee vote turned out the way it did is because he was the one who put a lot of those people in, in place or got on their start in republican politics um and you know so all that goodwill came back uh for him right you know at the right time and was critical for us in that 106 day campaign Kyle, when you and Eric were traveling the state or having conversations about um, Mitch Daniels and his run, and then, you know, through the administration, uh, we should note that Kyle was served as a director of the Department or Department of Natural Resources. So Kyle was in the Daniels administration as well. Is running for office something that you guys talked about together? Well, I mean, you, you, you go back to, you know, I mean, I think he came back from the Navy and, you know, went, went to his, went back to his roots in Knox County and, and, um, you know, did do an early run for office at the, at the state house, you know, it kind of been right from by some locals and involved with, with a number of other campaigns down there, you know, locally. Um, and so, so he, he certainly was pulled to, to public service, um, and and making a difference in things but but i, I kind of I, I would share that i don't think that 
Eric really lives his life or has lived his life being around him of trying to think about what's next. He's, he's tried to do the best he can possibly do and what he's doing in the moment. If anything, he's a little superstitious about it. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't <laughs> like to put the cart before the horse, like do the job we're doing today. And when we're accomplished with that, it actually, I think Mike can attest to this. Sometimes it makes it hard when you're, you know, trying to strategically plan it. It ends up being that you just got to go out and do, you know, you just got to go out and do things and then tell him later that you've done them on his behalf because um, he wants to be really focused on the task at hand uh, that, that's in front of him. So I, I don't think it's something that he ever sat around and said, I'm going to be, you know, I want to someday be the governor of the state. I think when, um, you know, we've gotten really uh, close to Dan Coates, he, he'd spent a lot of time in that office. Um, and so I think really when, when Dan decided not to run was, probably the first time in a long time that it really triggered in him uh, the thought and the, the desire to, to step up and actually serve himself in an elected capacity. Pete, when you were working on the Senate campaign or when Eric Holcomb says, hey, I want to run for Senate, were you surprised by that or did it seem a natural transition? I wasn't. I mean, there were some beating around the bush comments uh, leading up to that day when we would meet and chat at the Columbia Club. But I'm going to save most of those for my next book um, and just kind of reinforce what what uh, Mike and Kyle have said. And, you know, Eric Holcomb is fully and entirely focused on the task at hand at all times. And and you would see this in every role he played. You know, there are some people um, who occupy different positions and they're afraid of executing the job in that position because they're looking down the road uh, to what's next. You know, for instance, when he was state party chairman, and I use this example with people all the time, like when he was state party chairman, he didn't shy from holding Democrats accountable because that was his job. That's what he signed up to do. He wasn't, he wasn't looking down the field to what may or may not happen and how he should conduct himself in that role for some eventuality or some hypothetical. Um, and I think that's why he's such an appealing person in, in the very many capacities and the very many hats that he's worn over the years. And it even drills down further to just his, his personal interactions. You know, when he's talking to someone at a reception or, or an event, he's not looking over their shoulder to see who else is there. He's fully focused in the moment at present with who, who he's talking to. But I, I would say, you know, segueing to the 2016 campaign, yes, it was unprecedented. Yes, it was unpredictable. But Eric Holcomb was not unprepared. In fact, I think he was he was better prepared um, than than many of our our modern governors for the role, having been at the side of Mitch Daniels um, in in an official capacity and on the campaign, having been at the side of Dan Coats, incredible public servants that he could learn from firsthand and dating even further back to John Hosteller, who he worked for when, when John was, was a member of Congress. So um, that coupled with the deep, meaningful relationships that he, he built across the state, all of that collided together for what was really a, a magical and historical moment. Yeah, I mean, like to, to, the, to the planet ahead part, there would maybe only rivaled by 2020, right? We haven't <laughs> seen any one of the things that happened politically um, that happened in 2016, a city lieutenant governor stepping down, Evan by taking um, 
Baron Hill off the ticket. You know, Baron, a major party candidate in the right. in the summer stepping off the ticket. Um, a sitting governor who's running for re-election, being picked up as vice president, having no candidate for governor or lieutenant governor in, in that moment. Um, you know, with four months to go in late summer, uh, if any one of those things happens in, in another election year, it's the big story. And all of them happened in like five months. Um, you know, so Eric's experience in, in kind of rolling with it and and being in all these different experiences in politics, you didn't know what was going to happen next. So you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't plan to tomorrow. You, had, you just had to yeah. focus on what you were doing today. I mean, you got to figure, I, I just add that, Mike, we were at a point in late July where we had no candidate for governor, lieutenant governor, or two congressional districts. Right. <laughs> you, I mean, so much happened, you forget about it, and it was major stuff. We had three auditors that year, for Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> State auditors. Yes, that's State exactly right. right. On March 3rd, 2016, Eric Holcomb was sworn in as lieutenant governor uh, maybe Kyle go with you first. You're probably talking to him all the time. Well, all of you were, but how did Eric feel about receiving the nomination or the selection of being Lieutenant governor, which clearly was the springboard for his gubernatorial run just six months later? Yeah. Nah, yeah. You have to put it, you have to put it in the frame of reference that, you know, there, there was no gubernatorial run on the, on the, you know, on the horizon at that point. So, you know, it was a, it was a really tough time insofar as he had invested a significant amount of effort um, in building up what I, I believe was the, the strongest grassroots network of the three then Senate candidates, um, had well positioned himself in a number of ways for that role. And it's, and it was, you know, while while that um, opportunity that that he certainly needed to heed the call to take of being lieutenant governor, you, you don't turn that down when you're asked, especially not when you have a servant's mentality like like Governor Holcomb does. But it was really tough to step out of that Senate race. Um, and um, again, nowhere on the horizon was anything other than um, okay, we're now, we're now going to be in this Lieutenant governor's race. We, we need to put together the infrastructure to go out and raise money to support Mike Pence. We need to put together a travel schedule to go out and support Mike Pence. Uh, we need to do all of these things to ensure that, that we're reelected. Um, and again, that, that ticket was in good shape. I mean, there was never a poll that we saw that had Mike Pence down. So, um, he was really focused on that, but but the hard part was stepping in from a stepping out of a race that he'd invested a lot of time and energy and and um, and sweat into. Pete, well, you go back to stepping out of that race. You know, we ran that Senate campaign out of Hathaway Strategies, sponsor of today's right. podcast. <laughs> uh, I was working at Hathaway Strategies at the time. And uh, in fact, I think I wrote that description you read at the beginning of the show. I'm glad they're still <laughs> using it. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you a cut. Yeah, thanks. So we were, you know, we were there one day. I remember getting a call from a reporter in DC um, uh, on the date of the deadline to uh, withdraw a candidacy. And, and they said, um, hey, we hear Holcomb is pulled out of the Senate race. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? Where are you getting that from? And I, I was completely in the dark, had no idea what was going on. I, I called Eric 
no answer. Called Justin Garrett, who was the campaign manager at the time on the Senate campaign, no answer. And it wasn't for a, a couple hours later that Eric arrived at Hathaway Strategies. We all huddled together in Anne Hathaway's office. Eric sat down and he simply said, we have a new assignment. And he kind of ran us through what had happened over, uh, over the weeks leading up to that decision and what was going to take place in the weeks following. But I remember um, around the time he was, he was announced as the, the LG pick or after he was sworn in, I can't recall precisely when, but he did an interview uh, on WIBC. And prior to that interview, we were, we were prepping next door at South Bend Chocolate. And, and this is meant as, as no slight, it was, it was said for effect, but I, I looked at Eric and I said, I think you would have made a really good Senator. And he just, you know, kind of, you've seen him cock his head before when, you know, you say something that kind of intrigues him. He said, but I think you're going to be a great Lieutenant governor. And the reason I say that is, because you just have this infectious passion for all things Indiana. And not that that can't be channeled into being a U.S. Senator, and we'll see what happens down the road. But I, I think that role and the role that he currently occupies were, were made for him because he truly does love every highway and byway and, and gravel road of this state. Restaurant. I mean, you see it, you see it yeah. if, you, if you're on the... Um, on the Holcomb campaign email list. If you're not, you should, you should get on, but they're sending out lists of his favorite places to get hamburgers and breaded tenderloins and ice cream and all these different foods. And, and it's not being made up by Kyle and the team at, at, at state party and the campaign. This is all coming from Eric. He literally has a list on his iPad that he tracks this stuff. <laughs> well, remember Pete, I sent you a, a, a text at one point yeah. um, saying, you know, you guys should put out a cookbook and, or a restaurant guide or something, and you immediately texted back, say, that's no joke. We, What do you want? You want milkshake? You want tenderloin? Yeah, you want right. hamburger? We've got it all. And I kind of laughed. I was like, well, hell, I guess they're way ahead of me as usual. Yeah, we're, we're usually about right six steps like ahead. But um, <laughs> but no, it, and he, he's got it all because he knows it all. He knows every state, and, and it's why he is so successful and, uh, and so popular as our governor is because he loves the state and he loves the people so much. Sometimes when I, when I uh, occupy the Michael Bryan chair at Indiana Week in Review <laughs> and fulfill his duties poorly, uh, I make the point and have made the point on this podcast. I, don't, I can't imagine there is a or has been a gubernatorial candidate in Indiana's history who had traveled the state more prior to his campaign than Eric Holcomb. He did it when he worked for Mitch Daniels. He did it when he was Indiana Republican Party chairman. He did it when he was district director for Coates. And he probably did it more times than we can count just for fun. Mike, is am I off base on that? No, not at all. And it was, um, it, we, first of all, Ann Delaney like, hates you. Like I've developed a pretty good relationship with her, but she does not like you at all. So well, you know, you know, you know, <laughs> O'Brien, I'm one of your uh, uh, consultants. You don't have to compliment me like that. You don't have to say nice things. No, I mean, it, the, we had the really good problem we had when all this went down and it, it, we're in August of 2016 trying to get the campaign off the ground and organized. The best problem we had was we had so many people that wanted to help because he knew so many people. Another, a, the, a bad problem we had was everyone had a cell phone number. They wanted them at 
every county, you know, GOP, and that's still the case, right? I'm sure Kyle's dealing with this constantly of like, <laughs> there's never been, there's probably never been a governor in Indiana's modern history who more people have a cell phone number and just talk to him directly, um, which makes it, makes it really hard. And to Pete's point, he loves Indiana. August is also the start of the state fair and all these festivals, county festivals and small town festivals all over, all over Indiana. And you really had the one problem we had was we had to prioritize what we were doing. We had no time. Right. So he couldn't spend three weeks at the state fair, even though he loves the state fair and people from all over the state come. It was like, we've got to get him on the road into big places where he's not, he might not win <laughs> invest that time in strategically in places, but, but people are blowing, blowing up his phone, wanting to show up at bacon fest and which we did. Um, it's like, well, we don't have time to go to bacon fest. We only have 75 days left. We're trying to, uh, we've got a candidate who's, you know, been a candidate for 20 of them. So, uh, so yeah. yeah and, I mean, at the, and at the yeah. same time, you know, we, we had, um, you know, the, the governor, vice president Pence was on his campaign duties. So it was coming from all angles because, because every day there'd also be three or four requests of things that he had to pick up to do for the governor because the governor wasn't here. He had right. duties as Lieutenant governor that he already committed to. Plus he had to try to fit in the campaign campaign. Oftentimes was the, was certainly the, the bottom rung of those, those rankings, unfortunately. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guests today are Kyle Hupfer, Michael O'Brien, Pete Seat. We are discussing the 106-day campaign of Eric Holcomb for governor in 2016. We've learned a lot, including that Ann Delaney doesn't like me. And as we head into the summer, speculation is rampant that Mike Pence is on the short list of then- nominee Donald Trump's list of vice presidential possibilities. How much credence did you all give those rumors and how surprised were you, if at all, or maybe even throw Eric's thoughts in here to the extent you know them. Uh, on July 15th, 2016, Donald Trump announced that Mike Pence would be his running mate. Shocked, surprised, what did Governor Holcomb say? I mean, by then we weren't shocked and surprised, but, you know, I don't know that we were putting a lot of credence into it early. You know, um, I get supported Ted Cruz, as you recall, in, in the right. primary. So that didn't really seem to be a, a necessarily alignment, but he did, you know, check a lot of boxes for the president um, as far as getting him on the ticket. So that, that was an, an opening there, but, you know, kind of, I'd say maybe the five to seven where it actually was, was announced, announced, it started to look more and more like it was a possibility so much so that, you know, we, we were, you know, in my head and again, he, he wasn't there, but I was starting to think about what are the next steps, you know, you, you were, you know, the, the, the calendar was just incredibly um, unfriendly to this process by then. You know, we were, we were quickly approaching, as you, as, as you recall, we were quickly approaching the date that um, the deadline to voluntarily withdraw from the ballot. I mean, that really is what put the question to the president ultimately under whether or not he was going to pick Mike Pence. That was the deadline that was coming. 
you recall, once that happened, um, we were down to, I, I believe, less than 24 to 36 hours to take Eric off of the ballot as lieutenant governor um, and, and then apply for the caucus. Same thing that, you know, Congressman Rakita and Congressman Brooks had to do and for Governor Pence to pull off the ballot. I mean, it was a really tight timeline. And then obviously the timelines from there didn't get any better to hold the caucus, et cetera. But um, we knew that that timeline was coming. And so we knew the decision had to be made if it was going to be Governor Pence one way or the other within a you know three-day period at one point. Pete, let me ask you a question as, as to the chairman's point. As the chatter started to pick up, as it started to seem like this isn't pie in the sky, this is a real possibility. And how did you all, as friends of Eric and supporters, did you, among yourselves, start saying, okay, look, if Pence gets selected, we have to be ready to go? Or was it one of those things to the point made earlier about being superstitious? We're not going to talk to the lieutenant governor about this until it's time. Yeah, it's a, it's a mixed bag. You know, the first time the idea that Mike Pence could be the VP nominee came to my attention was actually um, several weeks before it became public. Uh, in an Indianapolis Star story, I was, I remember sitting down watching Meet the Press and uh, I was watching it on my DVR and I looked down at my phone because it it flashed and it was a text from Chuck Todd, the host of Meet the Press. And I was like, okay, that's freakish. Um, <laughs> and I checked the text and he said, hey, I'm hearing Pence is not just on the short list. I hear he is the list. And I'm like, Chuck, I, I don't know, man. Like, he's like, you know, what are you hearing? What's, what's the chatter back in Indiana? And I was like, there's really no chatter. I mean, he's running for governor. He's in a competitive race. Um, Chuck's like, well, I'm just telling you, like, this is, this is going down. This is happening. You know, y'all need to buckle up. And, uh, and I shared that with Eric. I think I took a screenshot of it and sent it to him and was like, hey, just heads up. I, I don't know what to make of this, but here's what Chuck is telling me. And, uh, and that was really the extent of the conversation because going back to what Kyle said earlier, you know enough about Eric to know that he doesn't put the cart before the horse. Uh, he doesn't get ahead of himself. Um, thankfully he, he does surround himself, however, with good people, um, who, who can think, think through these things and prepare him for, for what may come. And, and, you know, just to kind of highlight the, 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 superstitious aspect of it. I mean, I remember sitting in Eric's basement, watching, getting ready to watch the announcement, the actual official announcement that Mike Pence was the pick. And, um, and I think we had MSNBC on and, or NBC and Brian Williams came up and said, Hey, we've just found out that it's actually being delayed. And that's a moment where you're like, okay, what's going on now? <laughs> like, you know, kind of pump the brakes a little bit. Maybe we're going too fast here. I mean, it, it's, it's moments like that, it, that truly made it an unpredictable um, environment. But, you know, once the chatter really started to pick up and it, and it became obvious that, you know, it was going to be him or Newt or, or Chris Christie, um, you know, all the pieces kind of started to, to get put into place. Cause as Kyle said, I mean, the timeline was unforgiving. In, in every way, shape, and form, and there was no no time to dawdle and wait. Was it an advantage? One more question to you real quick, Pete. Eric Holcomb and Mike Pence have probably known each other decades, 
I'm assuming 20, 30 years. I'm guessing here, but it's got to be a very, very long time given how long uh, Eric's been involved in politics, let alone uh, now Vice President Pence. Did they have a, the kind of relationship where they could share, you know, information and and they felt comfortable talking to each other about this sort of thing? I mean, I can't imagine I'm going to make a guess here that Holcomb was in the complete dark like the rest of us or most of us as to what's going on. Did the fact that they got along so well and known each other so well, was that helpful? I'm going to be a good spokesperson and say I'm not going to speak for the governor on this, <laughs> um, but I will say uh, they have, in fact, known each other for decades. And when Eric was a student at Hanover, where Mike Pence also attended, mm-hmm. uh, however, uh, before Eric, Eric invited Mike to come speak at a fraternity function. So this this dates pre-politics. I mean, they had a relationship before um, before Eric was involved in politics, before Mike had run for office. Um, so yeah, it, and that's a relationship that, that continues to this day. Um, I, I don't know how often they talk, um, but you know, once a friend, always a friend, no matter what role you're playing. Mike, how quickly after the announcement uh, that Pence was going to join the national ticket, did uh, then Lieutenant Governor Holcomb call you and say, all right, I've made up my mind. I'm running for this. Cause he, I mean, it's not a foregone conclusion that he was going to run for it. He could have either stayed as LG or he could have gotten out of politics entirely. When did you get that call? And what was that call like to the extent that you can relay? I don't, I don't remember actually. I, I, I remember vividly after he was selected by state committee that entire day. I remember that entire day. I remember going to his house. I remember, the troopers there were scrambling, trying to. They said, "Are you? Are you, you're staying home, right? Because they've got to run down to the residence, and because they're still working to secure the residence for the vice president, work with the Secret Service, and and so it was just chaotic. And they, I remember being at his house, and him and the troopers coming in and going, "Hey, we're going downtown. You're, but we'll leave, but you're staying here, right? Meaning his house." And he goes, "Yeah, I'll stay here." And then they laughed, and he goes, "All right, let's go get something to eat." So we jumped in his truck and went to, went to immediately went to a restaurant. So I'm, I remember that whole thing. We talked about the campaign, and we talked about what all this is going to look like and, and the strategy there. And um, I remember that vividly. I don't remember because it was there was so much going on. Um, and I was in Boston for a wedding actually that weekend. When um, uh, by the time I can't remember what day of the week that week that that um, President Trump, um, then candidate Trump, announced that he was going to make his selection and then it got delayed and it got delayed if you recall to 11 a.m on friday morning which was one hour before the what kyle just talked about which was the indiana um deadline to to take candidates off the ballot we had to go through that whole process and that's when the thoughts and that's when those of us who weren't in and i wasn't in that tight i mean i wasn't in that five-person circle it was um around pence i was a layer two outside of it so i didn't know that the decision was official but everybody you know those of us who knew that factoid at least and it was there were plenty of us knew at that moment that that's when the, the, the pence was going to be the pick and that's when it was going to be announced and so this other process had to start had to be thought through and put in motion uh, on, on a time frame but it was so many things i don't remember the one i don't remember but we were talking all the time so i don't remember having one conversation but i do remember, I remember two weeks later when uh state committee voted on july 26 i remember i remember that that conversation like like it just happened you weren't surprised when he decided to run for governor. Like it wasn't like, oh, you know, this is this is a kind of a 
I didn't have any idea you wanted to be governor, but so nothing about the actual desire to run, even in. Well, by then there was, there was no time to prey on it. (laughs) You know, like you're, (laughs) you're in or you're not, and we're going right. I mean, it's like, that was it. There was no, no time to hem and haw about it. Kyle, talk a little bit. I can go ahead. I I, I can share my, I mean, I, I, I've told this story a few times, I think uh, probably not as publicly as this, but you know, there was a, you know, prior to Pence being named, there was probably, you know, like a seven day, at least eight day, you know, early July am- ambiguous period. And, and I don't, I don't remember the exact, all of the words of the conversation, but I do remember when I said, I, to him, I understand that you are going to remain focused on being Lieutenant Governor and nothing else until an official decision is made but I'm letting you know that I'm going to start making calls to state committee on your behalf, because if this goes down, we need to start positioning this now. Well, the other candidates were already doing that. We knew that. I mean, we, other candidates were making he, calls he and, couldn't sit and, still. and, and we, we couldn't just sit on the sideline. We had to start building those relationships and putting that out there. Kyle, talk a little bit. Cause you, I mean, not that everybody on the call doesn't on the podcast doesn't know, but you, you probably know as well or better than anyone. So now there's a vacancy at the top of the Republican ticket for governor, which then Eric, if he fills, now there's another vacancy as you articulated earlier, but tell the listeners of the leaders and legends podcast, how do you fill this vacancy for governor? What's the intra party mechanism to make this happen? Sure. So, so the folks who were who were interested um, had to file paperwork with the state committee um, for to be to make that replacement onto the ballot, and then it's just a straight up vote of the state committee. Like any other caucus, you've got to get fifty percent plus one of the votes. It's only the um, uh, elected members of the state committee, so the the chair, vice chair, others weren't involved in the vote. Um, and we sat in a room, the the eighteen of us, and we cast our ballots. Now, leading up to that was a whole lot of, you know, calls. I ended up not going to the to the national convention, which was, you know, kind of in that interim period, um, because I was back here working on stuff for for the governor. But you know, there was a lot of politicking going on at the at the national convention because a lot of the state committee members were there. And then, you know, we had a pretty good count. There were a few other people who thought about getting into the into the caucus that didn't. Um, I felt like we had the best count um, as to where things were at. Um, we were pretty transparent about it, but I can still remember the phone call when we had a group of uh, a handful of people that were that we kind of deputized to talk to the state committee. Jamie Knoll, as was mentioned earlier, myself, were doing a lot of it. Other people who had good relationships with one-offs got assigned to kind of touch them. Like, and then we were having a call every night leading up to the. Um, leading up to the caucus, I can remember when I finally told everybody, okay, we've got to stop calling them. Like we're, we're, we're going to lose votes. We're going to <laughs> never been this communicated with in their life. They've never had this kind of an important task in their life. Um, and so we shut it down about 48 hours in advance, 24 hours before Jamie and I called through again. And then, you know, we went in and, and had the, had the ballot. 
Now, you mentioned 18 members, so there's a chair and vice chair for each congressional district. That's how you get to 18. The Correct. chairman of the party at the time was Jeff Cardwell. As you mentioned, he did not have a vote, neither did the vice chair. So this, is my memory correct in that, Kyle, both you and Michael, were you in the room for the votes? I was. Well, he was a, Kyle was a member of state committee. Yeah, Mike right. wasn't on state committee then. Right. So he wasn't part of the 18 member group. No. I was county chairman. I was Hendricks County. Oh, chairman that's right. You're a county chairman. Yeah. yeah but what I wasn't you... a state committee member. I was in my office at, at, that, at that point. I was at Barnes and Thornburg and I was in my office wearing a hole in the rug, walking, <laughs> pacing back and forth so much, texting Joel Sturry <laughs> six seconds. What was going on? What was because those all of you made calls and talked to folks. What was your best? one or two talking points mike we'll start with you for on eric's behalf yeah i mean so this every caucus if you've ever been a part of a your precinct committee and listen to this or your county chairman or state chairman whether you're caucusing to select a candidate for governor or caucusing to select to fill a replacement on the township board um, the dynamics are very similar. I mean, the commitments are for your close friends. You get hard commitments immediately, right? Like no one had to convince Kyle Hub for, you know, at the time district chairman to vote for Eric. Right. right. Um, but it was, I mean, you had Susan, uh, you had Susan Brooks and you had, you had Todd Rakita, you had known people. I mean, you had Rakita had run, um, through that group several times through conventions and party primaries. Um, you know, so. He was well known in that group. Susan Brooks, um, a little less so. She was a, a congresswoman that didn't have, she had never, I don't think, established herself kind of on a statewide level, uh, but Eric had. And so I mentioned earlier that um, a lot of those people were in the positions they were in because when he was state chairman, he got them there. Um, they ran for district charity support him or he, he, he got them involved in, in, in the campaign somewhere. Um, you know, and, and so. It, the reason he was is so good at this and the reason he came out of that um came out of that caucus successfully is because he can drive through any small town or big town or big city or county in the state and know the top three people he's supposed to call i mean have their cell phone number you can he's you know driving through hendricks county he's going to know the what county commissioner to call um you know and that, that all benefited him and in that in that process so he wasn't a guy that we had to introduce to people um he was a little bit of a guy we had to convince would be a great candidate for governor um and he hadn't done that before you know and that was a challenge um who got to be the one to call him and say congratulations you're the nominee we were we were actually sitting yeah, they in were, they were state committee yeah we were sit, we were sitting in the conference room at uh, lou gehrig's office there in 101 West Ohio, which is the same building as the state Republican party. A number of us were in the conference room as was Eric, um, getting updates from Jamie and from Kyle about what was happening upstairs. And, uh, you know, one of those updates came, came down that he was the guy and it was time to go up and, uh, do the press conference. Yeah. We were texting. It wasn't calling, <laughs> yeah, but I, I, you know, to, to, to add on to what Mike said, I mean, I, I would say that, that the biggest pitch that I made, I mean, you have to realize, and, and Mike sort of alluded to this, that that um, who would be the best governor was never really the, you know, it isn't really the measuring stick in most of these things. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's much more of a personal uh, 
um, when you're in a caucus like this. And oftentimes what's best for me, right, for these individuals. And so that was my biggest selling point was, you know, Eric's going to travel the state. You know, Eric's going to be here for your, you know, pork dinner, your chicken fry, your bacon fry. He's, he's going to be there to help you and your folks in your district and your county chairs and your county commissioners and on down ballot if he's elected. And that's what he's done. I mean, if you talked about somebody who's, tra- who, who's traveled tirelessly before they were elected, I, you're not going to find a governor who's done more of those things since he's been governor than he has. I mean, still hitting the festivals, the fairs, the local political, you know, I think he's done, you know, 18 to 20 Lincoln Day dinners each year. I mean, he has stayed very politically active and fulfilled his commitment that he would be a very much a grassroots governor. And, and Kyle, as, as the person in the room in this group, to the extent that you want to, and you don't have to, what were the points made against him? Like you thought, well, as we go in, I mean, Kyle's an attorney. So, you know, you go in and you make your argument. You had to anticipate arguments made against Eric's candidacy, not against Eric, but against his candidacy. I assume it's got to be that he had never run and won elected office. The biggest one was fundraising. You know, I mean, folks said he couldn't fundraise. Obviously, the $8 million we finished the last quarter with would would (laughs) suggest that that was an erroneous that was a, that was an erroneous attack, um, but well, that was probably not, the big- not at the time. I don't want to you know bang on the guy, but you know not at the time it was an erroneous attack. He was right, hated right. it. He was terrible at it. <laughs> um, but, he, but he got he got good. I mean, because he had to do it, and he's excellent at it now. Well, he's so personable. It's got to be just hugely effective when you're. Of course, Greg Ballard's incredibly personable, and fundraising isn't isn't something he particularly <laughs> enjoys. Guys, guys don't like it. Pencil so, the master. So he comes out and it's Eric Holcomb. How quickly did he announce or choose Suzanne Crouch, who I believe was the sitting state auditor, fourth right. highest elected official? How long before those two made their pairing? So we, so we left. Um, I had a room over at the Columbia Club that a few of us uh, convened in. We had, we had done as much vetting and background we could do without talking to anyone because we, we did not want to actually reach out to anyone um, in, in the LG process. And keep in mind, it was a very narrow field by this point because if you were, if you were on the ballot, you were excluded. So you were past that date to come off the ballot. So anybody running, any state rep was off the consideration. Any statewide that was running was off consideration. All the congressionals who were on the ballot were out, mm. so it's a pretty narrow field that we had to that we had to look at, and the time was quick because we had to get the lieutenant governor choice on the timeline. So we, I mean, at a high level, the process was we left that meeting. I called potential LG candidates. The next morning, they were in Indianapolis. If they couldn't come to Indianapolis the next morning, they were off the list. Uh, governor met with folks that day. And this was on a Wednesday, um, met with folks on Thursday. He made a phone call on Friday night to who he wanted to select and Suzanne and Friday they filed the paperwork. So about a 36 hour process to 48 hours from him being selected to him selecting an LG candidate. And you mentioned, uh, 
fundraising. I, I wish every candidate had uh, Suzanne Crouch's fundraising enthusiasm and prowess. She's a <laughs> she was a terrific choice and has remained a terrific partner. How long did they known each other, and what made what made then candidate Holcomb Mike comfortable with that choice? Well, she had a lot of experience. She had a lot of experience in the legislature. She was well known um, around the state because of that. Um, already, she was then it moved into a vacancy, filled a vacancy for uh, for state auditor, was a statewide um, elected official. And like Kyle said, the list was really small. I mean, you you had half the Senate. If you wanted an elected official, you had a mayor. If you want someone with elected experience, you had you had your options were a mayor or half the state senate, and everybody else was <laughs> off the list, um, except for the three uh, secretary of state, uh, treasurer, auditor. So, um, not that you had to have, but you had no time to think outside the box. I mean, so you kind of look back and go, well, you could have, you know, looked at the business community or look, you know, look somewhere else. It's like, no, you sure. need people that you knew that you knew could raise money, and Suzanne could do it. That you knew could campaign, and we knew she could. Um, and had experience had in, the, in the building. With, yeah, it had been, had been vetted. She'd been, been elected official for a long time. And you mm -hmm. couldn't go outside the box. It takes time to go outside the box. It takes time to get to know people and understand them. Um, and, and you had all that already with Suzanne. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our special sponsor for this podcast is Hathaway Strategies. Hathaway Strategies played a significant role in Eric's now Governor Holcomb's career and campaigns, and we appreciate their support. You've got the ticket, and you know who you're running against. John Gregg ran a campaign, lost to Mike Pence in 2012 for governor, but a longtime uh, Democratic politico was Speaker of the House. University liked, universally liked, great personality, had a network having run again. What made you all think that Eric Holcomb could beat a seasoned and smart and gregarious candidate like John Gregg? Pete? Well, number one, he's a Democrat in Indiana. Uh, number two. He had, experience is, he, had, he had experience losing a governor's race. Yeah. No, it was, <laughs> John you Gregg can did. learn a lot from that, right? I mean, yeah. you can learn more from losing than you do That's from right. winning. Sure. Um, but what, what made messaging against John Gregg, and not just, you know, you mentioned he's gregarious, he had a great relationship with Eric Holcomb. Exactly. Which, which was an interesting dynamic in and of itself. But, um, you know, you, you go back to 2012 when he ran against Mike Pence, uh, his, John Gregg's first campaign for governor. I was at the Indiana Republican Party at the time and was tasked with putting together the opposition messaging that we were going to use against John Gregg and it had the opposition book, the old quotes, the, the, the votes, the records, everything. And had put together uh, something like two dozen press releases and speeches and you name it for a variety of reasons. Only one of those two dozen ever saw the light of day. And I kept everything on my laptop just on the off chance that, you know, you never know 
there might be an opportunity down the road. Lo and behold, four years later, here we find ourselves running against John Gregg yet again. And I literally just changed the date on every one of those press releases <laughs> and finally got them, got them out, um, uh, out into the bloodstream. So it was, that was easy. And it was, it was helpful that I had done the work four years prior. Um, because, you know, we, we obviously needed to get met, uh, Eric's message out there and, and talk about building on the momentum of, of Mitch and Mike. And, you know, on that note, the, the one thing and, and, and Eric, you know, really handled it well, but I, I, it, it drove me crazy when he was asked the question and probably drove him crazy. He was always asked, are you more like Mitch or more like Mike? And you right. know, obviously the answer is he's Eric. And, and that it goes back to why he's so successful is because he's true to himself at all times. And, and he is who he is. He, 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 he gets excited about things that normal people get excited about and loves to talk about the Indy 500 ad nauseum and go to these restaurants, like we mentioned earlier. So doing his messaging, you know, once, once we got through the nomination and had the LG picked and like the process was taken care of, you know, we could really hone in on, okay, what's the message now? What are we talking about from a policy perspective? Um, and, 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 and do that because the John Gregg stuff had been taken care of four years prior. Pete, do you have any uh, special messaging stories from that campaign? I mean, you've, you've been involved at the White House, multiple campaigns. As I recall, Pete, forgive me, you did the messaging in 2010 for the Coates campaign for Senate that won. Were you on that campaign as well? I was, yeah. And so uh, how is Eric as a messenger? And do you have any particular memories of how things went well or how things didn't go well? It's something that he has absolutely grown into. And, you know, this is someone who, who prior to being Lieutenant governor, I, of course he was running for Senate uh, for a period of time, but prior to that was, was mostly behind the scenes. I mean, even as state party chairman, you'd go do some Lincoln day dinners or, or other County events, but he, he wasn't always the messenger. Um, he's, he's extremely adept and skilled at crafting a message, um, in large part because it comes from his, from his head in his own words. Um, but he wasn't always the one delivering that message. And, and I think we've seen even in his time as governor, uh, how quickly, uh, rapidly he's grown, um, his level of comfort is, is, is certainly noticeable, um, but, you know, it goes back to kind of the timeline thing, you know, the, the big challenge that we had, at least that I had from the communication side was, was prioritizing, you know, he had to raise money. He had to go to these events. Uh, everyone wanted a piece of him, including the media. I mean, you've, you've been a spokesperson, Robert, you know, when a member of the media calls with a question, um, you know, more times than not, the spokesperson can handle it, uh, in the right circumstances, but this was not. A normal circumstance. This was someone who had just been placed on the ballot to run for governor, and every reporter only wanted to talk to Eric Holcomb. Uh, Mike, you know, did his fair share of, of interviews. I did my fair share, but the majority of them had to be Eric for a number of reasons. And you know how you prioritize those, how you get those on the calendar, how you make them happen on the road in person um, was a was a real real challenge for us. Not to mention prepping for debates. Um, and all the other things that you have to do and cram into 106 days. Kyle, you mentioned fundraising earlier as something that was kind of a talking point against Eric. You guys raised a ton of money in a short period of time. It's a remarkable effort. 
how did it happen? Well, I mean, it's as simple as three letters, RGA, Public <laughs> Association. I mean, they, you know, they stepped up immensely. You know, they are, I, I've gotten to know them real well. I know Mike worked with them close during the, the cycle. Um, you know, they are a phenomenal organization. Republican governors across the country are very strong. They've got a, a tremendous amount of support. They run a very efficient and effective political operation. And so they they were blessed to have a substantial amount of funding. And so between folks who had supported Mike and, and were willing to, you know, uh, write checks to Eric, um, his own relationships that he had around the state, which provided right. some support and fundraising. But, you know, the RGA was, uh, you know, 85% of the funding at the end of the day. And it's why that organization exists. It's to ensure that a candidate or these types of situations can be funded um, in a relatively short order. Because we, we were still raising money hand to mouth, as Michael tell you, but um, it was a different process than, than what we've seen, say, over the last three and a half, four years heading towards a reelect, where it's a methodical process. It was, it was a free-for-all, catch-as-catch-can. Um, Brian McGrath was very involved with that. Mindy, who, Mindy Colbert, who still works for for us here was, was, you know, intimately involved, but there were a lot of, a lot of interesting calls of, you know, we just need you to write a check if you're supportive of the governor and we don't know when or if you'll ever get to see him. <laughs> That's right, right. <laughs> what people, what, what people forget about um, coming out, coming out of state committee, fundraising was a big thing. How are we going to pay for this? Pence was sitting on six, $7 million dollars there was an assumption coming out of that, that whoever the nominee was, was going to get all this money was going to go from Pence to that candidate. And that would be used to see the, the campaign and, and just run it. That money was donated for the purpose of electing a Republican governor. And that's what it was going to be going to be used for. What nobody figured out until we were in it um, was that that money couldn't be transferred um, right. because of federal campaign finance laws. We had for the first time, we're testing campaign finance laws that had never been interpreted or tested before. And so we were, we had to refund or Pence had to go refund all of those donations that were, that were made to him in a, in a certain period of time um, within a certain window. He was able to transfer a fraction of that, just over a million dollars to the, to the Holcomb campaign, which was critical at the time. It seeded the campaign in August of that year but but people assumed including the democrats assumed okay well they're about to get a plug of six seven eight million dollars from from pence that never came he had to go refund the majority of that and then we had to set up this imagine like if you've ever been on a campaign you're just the organization itself to traditionally raise money to identify donors to call them to do what kyle just described try to you know get them a meeting or get them an event we couldn't do any uh, we we had to do that, but the stuff we had to go through first was refund. Pennsylvania was to refund all these dollars, and then we had to identify who those donors were that were getting money back and try to go fundraise off of them. So it added this, mm. it added this layer to it that was really complicated and baked in this assumption very early on um, that Democrats, I think, relied on, which was this campaign is never going to get off the ground. They're, they can never uh, this the, the the huge chunk of Pence money is not coming. Um, we everyone got it wrong. And none of this money's going over. This campaign's kind of dead in the water before it even before it even started. That was the assumption we dealt with in the first like two weeks of August. Mike, how much did or was the thinking at the time 
and everyone is on this podcast is seasoned political thinkers and strategists and communicators and fundraisers. Your candidate is, was all those things, but how much of it was your path or strategy to win tied to how well Trump did in Indiana in 2016? We knew the whole, uh, as, as we were getting into it, I mean, we could benchmark, we could benchmark each of the races in Indiana off of what Trump was doing. But once we got enough data behind it, once we saw enough polls um, and, and where we saw Trump on the top and then Todd Young, what's the drop off between Trump and Todd Young in the poll? What's the drop off between Todd Young and, uh, and Eric? And where's the president need to be in order for us to be in that window to, to win? And the I'll get the numbers kind of right. I mean, if Trump was going to win by 10, there was a good chance Todd Young was going to lose. Um, if mm. he won by 13 to 15, everybody's probably in. Um, and if he wins by 20, it's, it's, you know, see, a, see in four years for reelection, you know, and, and that, that's wound up, what wound up happening. <laughs> that was never certain. Right. I mean, like you, you were, you're a week into October and the, you know, the, the, the tape comes out and Mike Pence suspends his campaign and he's back in Indiana and we don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, Republicans are in the tank nationwide. The assumption is that this campaign is over. There's this ridiculous subplot of replacing Trump on the on the ticket. You know all of these crazy things that you kind of forget about because winning is great amnesia for all the chaos in a in, in what you thought was going to be a failed campaign. Um, but so we never we were never counting on Trump winning by twenty in Indiana. We were trying to run a campaign that that raised awareness and attention to the to the extent that we were that Eric was in a position that if that wave came or if it didn't and he was on the line that we had done enough to get him across it. Did the young, the Todd Young, Evan By Senate race affect your race at all? It really helped that Evan By didn't have one single good day ever in that campaign it was a mess from the time you i mean he had to get up for by by september he had to wake up in the morning and wonder how bad his day was going to be by lunch i mean he he did not have one single good day on that campaign and trevor Fowdy, his credit certainly todd young just pounded the guy um and and all of it, a lot of his wounds early on were self-inflicted of not knowing where he lived and all this you know all this other stuff lost to history is trevor Fowdy and i actually discovered the new jersey condo um, back in 2010, when he dropped off the, when Evan Bayh dropped off the ticket, you'll never convince me that that wasn't the reason he didn't run for re-election. But that race, uh, <laughs> but I digress. Um, that that race was on, a, on the Evan Bayh side was a was a nightmare. It was because of a candidate. It was supposed to be a savior, um, and so we were running in some pretty clean air um, underneath that race. The debates are always important. They're usually more important for people like us than they are the ordinary voter because we pay, we put so much uh, emphasis on them from a political consultant and messaging standpoint. Pete, what was it like to prepare Eric Holcomb for those debates? I forget. I, I used to know, and I don't know who, who was the John Gregg stand-in, but did you feel the debates did? It was Randy Head. Was it Randy? Was yeah. That the debates did a good job for Eric because it showed that he could stand toe to toe and really introduce himself to the voters who are paying attention. Yeah, you know what I remember most about debate prep is the embarrassment of riches that we had in terms of volunteer mental power. 
uh, going back to what Mike said earlier about all these people who wanted to help and were contacting Eric. I mean, you had five or six policy experts on every issue that we needed to cover. Um, you know, Eric, of course, was well versed on a lot of these, but there were some intricacies uh, that he he wasn't fully up to speed on and that we needed to get him up to speed on. Um, although, you know, Randy Head was the John Gregg stand in. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think we, we ever, ever got him, to play we? John Gregg. We never actually <laughs> yeah. had him do it. Um, most of our, our debate prep was was conversation, was, you know, digesting information, asking questions, having these various experts around the table. Um, one of which is now the Speaker of the House here in Indiana, Todd Houston. Remember, he was there. Poor Randy Head was always there, just itching to get behind that podium. <laughs> but, um, but you know, Eric, when you work with Eric, you, you know the telltale signs of how he prepares. You know, he, he takes the glasses off, kind of rubs his eyes, scribbles things on in the margins, um, writes out his thoughts, because um, he really does pride himself on, on putting things in his own words. And, you, you know, you can you can prep him as much as you want. You could give him as much information as you want, but he's going to find a way to, to Eric Holcombize it um, before he goes up there. And, um, you know, I, I remember I mean, the first debate was in Indianapolis. It was extremely awkward because it was at a school in the middle of the day. And I remember we were, you know, trying to decide um, how it would play out. Would it would it. Would you have these rhetorical jabs going back and forth between Eric and John Gregg, or because it was predominantly a, a school-aged audience, would they be on their quote-unquote best behavior? It ended up being the latter, um, which yeah, was- Yeah, we got a lot of, we got, we got a lot of, I forgot about that because we got criticism after that because people, people were like, you got to go, you got to go after John Gregg. And it's like, well, that's easy to say, but you're sitting in front of a bunch of like sixth graders, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, like you didn't see the audience in this, in this room. <laughs> yeah, sure. And- and so, you know, it was it was good because it could get Eric behind that podium talking through these these questions and answers, but then bad at the same time, because we didn't necessarily know what was going to come in the next debate. And I think the next one was Evansville. If I if I recall correctly, Mike and I flew down there with Eric, uh, spent a couple of days down in Evansville doing some events and, and, and prepping for the debate. But I think Eric did an incredible job in, in these debates and 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 it contributed to why he was ultimately elected as, as well as all the other things that we've talked about today, um, on the show. But he is, he is just, he's such a good, solid, quick study, um, that once he gets up there, he can regurgitate the information and, and make it, uh, resonant with, with voters. Kyle, was there a sort of emotional progression or an outlook progression of, okay, we're launched the campaign, even in Indiana, even as a Republican, we're the underdog for the next 106 days. And then things started to brighten and the outlook started to get a little more rosy. Or was there a time where you're like, okay, we're going to win. And I'm feeling good about this. Not that you didn't work hard, not that you didn't get your message out or raise money, but was there some sort of fulcrum where the outlook turned very favorable for Eric? And I can't peg a day. I mean, I, I certainly, I mean, we didn't have a whole lot of time to think, Robert, but everybody, <laughs> acting, you know, I mean, it wasn't, we didn't have a lot of, you know, there, there wasn't a, you know, for the reelect, we had strategy meetings and things months out and sort of those sorts of things. None of that was, was happening. We were, I mean, making decisions in the moment, living in the moment. 
I mean, I, I recall that by the time we got to the JW Marriott, I was pretty confident we were going to win that night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I remember for me, it was, I think the Friday before the election, I went to um, Huck's office, Matt Huckleby, and, and I said, I only want bad information. Everyone's giving me good news on record early voter turnout and Republican areas and um, you know, all these, all these data points that we, that we tracked, um, we're all pointing in the right direction. That was the Friday before the election. At that point, I'm like, I want to, I want the bad news to see if we can do, there wasn't any, by then if there wasn't any, it was, it was like, you know, the, the entire environment had changed nationally. I mean, that was, you know, a week after, um, uh, the FBI report on Hillary Clinton comes back out. And so everyone, everyone's re-energized. Um, all of our voters were motivated. Um, there were these absurd assumptions and this is all because you know, the, the middle, you know, had a problem with Mike Pence at the time. Um, they would make all these assumptions that voters in suburban areas that are traditionally Republican are voting early in record numbers. And that must be because they hate Donald Trump so much. Um, and they'd have all these like third, you know, th- three-way you know, analyses on, on why that wasn't good for Republicans. And my answer was like, <laughs> look, maybe maybe the easiest analysis is the obvious one, which is if Republicans are in, in Republican areas are turning out record numbers early, maybe they're voting Republican. So let's just, we can all we can all dissect it on the back end if that's not if that actually isn't what's happening and why. Uh, but let's just assume that it's good news for Republicans that Republican areas are turning out in record numbers. That's what happened. A poll came out just a few weeks before the election, a mammoth poll. What was the impact? What was in that poll, Mike? And what was the impact of that poll on the campaign? Well, the, the impact on the campaign was what there wasn't an impact on the campaign. We thought it was a nonsense poll and it wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. It had us down 18 points and nothing we ever saw. Um, <laughs> you know, our, these national polls came in and they, and they were up and down wildly. I mean, they would be up, they, they, it would be 15, 20, 30 point swings weeks apart. Whereas our polling was, was very, was showing very methodically that we were, that John Gregg had a ceiling at 44 that he couldn't get above and we were gaining on it. Um, and that ultimately was the margin and about the margin in the, um, in the election. So the impact on the, the campaign itself was negligible. The, impact on the people around the campaign was panic <laughs> the impact <laughs> on the state house and the government center was absolute panic uh, and so th- there was a period where you had to go and, and calm you know calm people down and go look we're this is slow and steady this is you know this is a football team with three plays you know we're we're, we're we've been running them for three months and we're going to run them until election day hey, well, what you, was your you, impression yeah, I mean, you remember it being an 18-point margin. I thought it was 13, so maybe by next year we'll 30, say it was 25. Yeah. Who knows? Right. It was in but, the teens. Yeah, I remember, I remember when it came out, I was at um, uh, Acapulco Joe's down here in downtown Indy with Brian McGrath having lunch, and you know, you were on the phone with us. We were trying to like think of a response, and your, your quote that we put out to the media, Mike, was something akin to laughter with words. You know, we knew the methodology was off. We knew their numbers were off. You know, you can only say internal polling so many times. You know, the media desperately wanted a race. Um, but I think the most lasting impact is, you know, that that poll kind of became a rallying cry um, internally and, and with our allies. And, and I don't know if this is uh, if any of us have talked about this publicly before, but, but shortly after the, the campaign ended, Joe Elsner sent around an email and said, Hey, I need everyone's shirt size. 
And he didn't say why he just said, you know, it's a surprise. And, um, I think it was probably at the holiday party later, you know, later that year, Eric gave everyone a Monmouth university sweatshirt, um, <laughs> as a gift. I mean, it was kind of, kind of like, you know, we showed them like they, not just Monmouth, but all these people who were trying to take us out, you know, the media was trying to wrap their narrative around this poll and say that John Gregg had this in the bag. And, and we ultimately, uh, showed them who's who and what's what. As we wrap up the Leaders and Legends podcast about the historic 106-day campaign 2016 of now Governor Eric Holcomb, Kyle Hupfer, there's a there's a pejorative term assigned to folks running for office. It's a it's a condition. It may be medical. It may not be, and that condition is candidate itis. Do you have any examples of Eric Holcomb's candidate itis that we can smile about? years later or did the fact that he ran Mitch Daniels's 2008 campaign which amazingly won Marion County the same year that Barack Obama shattered records for votes in Marion County how much did the fact that Eric had been where Mike was where you are help him get past what is a common lament of candidate itis. I'm not. I'm not sure exactly what candidate itis is. When I, when I think of it, I think of these serial candidates who can't can't do anything else in their life, which is certainly not which is certainly not Governor Holcomb. I think it's defined as thin-skinned, anxious, nervous oh. all the time. Calling your calling Michael Bryan multiple times during the day. Am I going to be okay? What should I do, Mike? Is this all sounding familiar? Yeah, I don't. I don't think. Yeah. It's, I don't, I mean, uh, I don't know. I think, I'm not sure it's completely his M.O. I mean, you know, all of us, at least Mike and I and Eric, to some degree, and probably to a large degree, owe a great deal of our political pedigree to living in and around and soaking up uh, Governor Mitch Daniels, right? We were We all cut our teeth. To some some way, shape, or form on those on that campaign, we were all around him, and let's just say that he has a very unique style as a candidate, um, especially with this. And so, that what you see a little bit is is a, an opposite approach with Eric. He's, he he tends to be very calm, cool, collected. A lot of stuff doesn't bother him. You don't see him overreact to media questions or to some negative piece that is written about him. Um, and I think he keeps his eye on the prize, that, the, that, the, that he, he understands that the only real objective is to win on election day when you're a candidate. And, and I think some of that was also shaped, you know, um, by his first run for Statehouse. I mean, I, he and I've talked about it a lot. I mean, I think you learn a lot in that kind of a race when you're not your own person, which, you know, there's certainly things I would do different. I know there's things he would do different from that run. Um, and so you let that shape you and, and he's very much his own person and comfortable in his own skin. And so, I, I, I mean, I, I guess everybody has a little bit of it, but, but he's pretty calm, calm under fire. On November 8th, 2016, Eric Holcomb was elected, I believe the 50 first governor of the mm -hmm. state of Indiana to the everlasting credit of Hoosier voters. 
and to our great benefit in the sense that we have his steady hand, his calm hand. And quite frankly, I think his military background has helped him considerably uh, navigate uh, what are some unprecedented issues in the history of Indiana. We have three guests on to talk about this campaign, and I'm going to ask for their final thoughts. Uh, Pete, give me a final thought about that campaign and or Eric Holcomb. Well, you mentioned Election Day, and the first thought that popped into my mind um, goes back to the superstition is I, I wrote a victory speech and a concession speech. And to my knowledge, Eric Holcomb did not look at either of those until the race was called. In fact, I remember Mike O'Brien coming down to the ballroom to get copies. I'm pretty sure it was you, Mike. And um, I accidentally gave him two copies of the concession speech. And he called me back and was like, hey, try, try, try that again. Uh, so I had to go back to the printer, print the victory speech. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I always took it as a, as a testament to, to understanding Eric and and knowing how he thinks and how he likes to phrase things that very few edits were made to that speech. And it, and it stands as um, one of my proudest accomplishments in, in politics is not just being part of this campaign, this historic 106 day campaign and working with incredible people um, like those of, uh, on this show today and those whom we've mentioned, but um, the idea that I was, I was able to write, uh, those words in the in that night and that they were delivered to Hoosiers by our next governor. Mike, I want you to do the same thing, but I want to ask a question, add, give you an additional assignment. And that is very quickly, and I meant to ask it earlier, I had it written down, but didn't. How, imp- along with your final thoughts, how important Janet Holcomb was to Eric's victory. She understands politics. She understands fundraising. She understands campaigns. What role did she play along with your final thoughts? I mean, she was a full partner. I mean, it was, it was, she was on the road every day, you know, she was, she was out um, just as his other half. Um, and we, that's what we needed. That's exactly what we needed. Um, you know, and, and she, yeah, you just said it. I mean, she understands politics. She understands how all this works and how it all fits together. Um, and you don't always get that, especially if, you know, when you go home and tell your wife, you're going to run for statewide office and starting tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, three or four months to do it um you know so she was she was critical in all that and it's been a great first lady and, and a great partner to eric um uh through all this i mean the, the takeaway on election night uh, or the takeaway on the campaign first of all it was an honor to be a part of it and, and certainly a great probably the greatest position in elect uh, campaign politics i'll ever have um and I do joke, it's entirely possible at 36, I peaked. Um, but, uh, but the team is what really struck me. I mean, we had a, we had a core team of 23 people. We had 20 people out in the field. And with the exception of four of those, uh, of that, that team of 46 or 47 people, and I said this on election, I went, I went down and, um, had just told Eric that he, that he won, um, which is a great, which just a great moment personally in, in my life and career. Um, had the opportunity to tell him and Janet and Dan and Marsha Coates, who were in his room at the time, that, uh, that the Associated Press had called it. I, Pete, I got up to his room and Pete called me and um, I hung up and, and told him the Associated Press had called the race and congratulations. But I went down and uh, addressed the, the team in the in the war room and, and said, you know, it was never lost on me that that entire team had been uh, stepped up and sought that job of whatever, whatever job they had in that, in that campaign, um, 
they got it to get someone else elected governor. Um, and that person was Mike Pence. Uh, and they, the, the campaigns are con- in politics in general and life in general, right? I mean, it's full of people competing with each other, positioning each other in politics, and they're trying to be close to the guy, or there's a drama on the team, you know, or, or people want to be the one making the decision or, or whatever. There's, there's a lot, of, there could be a lot of drama in politics. And um, there was no room, there was no time for that. And nobody, and there wasn't any. Um, the team we had just reacted to the situation as it, as it unfolded uh, over the summer. And just drove straight through the campaign and never, never missed a beat. Um, it was a great effort. Kyle, I don't know. I, I just look back with and think of it as being a heck of a lot of fun. You know that that um, you know to kind of kind of get to be a part of a historic situation to, to get to watch one of your friends, you know, go through it as well and become governor. Um, I just always look back at it with a lot of, of fondness and and opportunity, you know, for you know for for a lot of folks in this state um, who had been around politics. This was a little bit of the changing of the guard, you know, some new folks like Michael Bryan or Brian McGrath or Pete Seat, who, you know, it was it was a new new day and a and a new group of folks who were who were running running a campaign, running the show, making decisions, having fun and showing that it can be done in a, in a good and, and conge- congenial and friendly way. And, and I, I, that's what I think about. I, I think about all the good times and fun that we had along the way. Certainly it was hard work, but, but it always is. Um, but, but I'm just thrilled to have been a part of it. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Special thanks to our sponsor for this podcast, Hathaway Strategies. Our guests have been Kyle Hupfer, Pete Seat, and Michael O'Brien, three men who not only are good friends of mine, for which I'm very grateful, but who played an instrumental role in the election of Eric Holcomb for the 106-day campaign in 2016. Guys, thank you very, very much. I appreciate your insight. Great stories, a lot of fun, wonderful history. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.